Good morning. Welcome again. Uh, we are in Hebrews chapter 1 today for our special one-off sermon. It's on page 1001 if you're using one of the church Bibles. Uh, I hope everybody has had a few swigs of eggnog this morning. This is going to be some high-octane theology for us. Uh, preaching today about Jesus and what makes him so much better than angels. Uh, why are the angels so prominent at his birth and what does that tell us about him? The letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds, and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Aren't they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and ask God to help us understand what he's saying to us. Father, thank you for speaking to us once again through this ancient text that is alive, that is here to expose us before you so that we might know you and love you and enjoy you. Help us to see this morning why and how Jesus is so much better than the angels, as wonderful as they are, so that we might join them in worshiping him. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, if you have never read uh, the Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, he's the guy that wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, this book, the Screwtape Letters, is fantastic, and everyone should read it. Uh, it's, you know, this is the book where it's uh, an imagined set of letters from an uncle demon writing to his nephew demon about how to tempt uh, the young man to whom he's been assigned. Uh, in the preface to the letter, C.S. Lewis points out uh, different ways throughout history that the angels have been portrayed in artwork. Uh, he points out that in the Middle Ages, angels were depicted with a drawn sword and a battle helmet, uh, almost always with a sword in their hands. Uh, but then during the Renaissance, uh, angels started getting chubbier 
and littler and more childlike. Uh, and then by the Victorian period in the 1800s, you get the depictions that you might find today at Hobby Lobby or in your emoji keyboard. Uh, you have cute little babies with tiny wings. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that if you had met a medieval angel, you would have wanted to scream or cry. If you had met a Renaissance angel, you would have wanted to smile. If you had met a Victorian angel, you would have wanted to laugh. He points out that the first words of angels in the Bible are almost always, don't be afraid, but that the Victorian angels look like they just want to say to you, they're there. Uh, A quick search this week on YouTube confirmed for me that our world and many Christians are still very confused about angels, uh, if we believe in them at all. Uh, All world religions, almost everybody who has ever lived, almost everybody on the planet today, believe in the existence of spiritual beings who influence the material world. Uh, The Bible talks about these beings quite a bit. Uh, they become, maybe this is surprising to you, uh, they actually become a lot more prominent in the New Testament. And this is not just some weird Old Testament thing. They actually are much more uh, in the New Testament than they are in the Old Testament. Uh, they are an important part, of course, of the Christmas story and the gospel accounts. Uh, and the beginning of this letter to the Hebrews, we don't know who wrote this letter. Uh, this was uh, written to a group of Jewish Christians who were thinking about uh, maybe leaving Christianity and going back to being Jewish. Uh, this beginning of this letter goes into great detail all of a sudden about who they are and how they relate to Jesus. But before we dive into the beginning of this letter, so that we can better understand what's going on with the angels at the birth of Jesus, uh, let me briefly go into you, uh, with you what the angels are. Uh, angels, like us, and like quasars, and like elephants, and like live oaks, they are God's creatures. Uh, they are not God. They are something that God made. The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail about the angels, and it uh, discourages us from doing lots of speculation about them. Uh, But we at least know that there are vast multitudes of angels. Uh, One theologian from the Middle Ages, I'm not sure how in the world he got to this point, but he said, I think there's a trillion angels. Uh, There's a lot. Probably not a trillion, but there's a lot. Uh, The Bible also seems to indicate that they have various ranks, uh, that they even have various species. There's different kinds of angels and kind of a, their own hierarchy. Uh, that reading that we had earlier from that very strange book of Revelation about the, the living creatures with the, the different kind of fearsome faces of different animals and even of a person, uh, that seems to be describing for us one species of angel. Uh, the angels were all created individually, one by one by one by one. Uh, and like humans, they are immortal Although unlike humans, they are entirely spiritual. Humans are spiritual and physical. Uh, All humans will live forever. Even our bodies will be raised again to live forever. Uh, Angels are not physical. They're just spiritual. Uh, Angels, like humans, are rational. They're moral. Uh, A large chunk of them, which we now call demons, rebelled against God, who made hell in order to punish them forever. Uh, Angels are limited in time and space, Uh, They are located in kind of one spot uh, and in one time, although they seem to relate to time and space much more freely than we do. They can kind of, they seem to be able to just zip across the universe, uh, zip through time very quickly. I'll leave it to physics teachers like Chris Corley to explain to you guys maybe how that's possible. He knows a lot about dark matter and there's that cat. There's a famous cat, something about that. 
He can help you figure that out. Uh, angels are glorious and powerful. Uh, like we mentioned, when they appear in the Bible, the first thing they say is, don't be afraid. People think they're about to die when an angel appears. Uh, there are multiple stories in the Bible about God using angels to kill tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people at once. But their main job is to worship God. Uh, they worship God in heaven. That's what they were made to do. Uh, and they carry out his will for him on earth. Uh, particularly and especially to defend and to help God's people here on earth. Uh, the New Testament teaches that the angels are watching what's happening on earth, that they're very interested in what God's doing in the church, that they're learning about God, they're learning about us as they watch it. Uh, even, the New Testament says in a couple places, the angels are attending church services. They're here right now. Uh, there's a place in the New Testament where Paul says, be careful, you don't want to offend the angels in the way you do church. But at important times in history of God's dealings with humanity, uh, the angels do more than their usual jobs of worshiping God and helping people, attending church. Uh, sometimes, at important points in the history of God's uh, work with people, the angels become much more directly, much more outwardly involved. Uh, they bring the Old Testament law to Moses on Mount Sinai. Uh, this might have something to do with why this letter starts out talking about the angels. Uh, maybe these Jewish Christians are pretty interested uh, because they've heard that the angels were really important for getting the law of Moses. Uh, at other points in the Bible, they deliver important messages. The word angel just means messenger in the Old and the New Testaments. Of course, like I just said, uh, sometimes they show up to very kind of dramatically fight against God's enemies. Uh, Jesus teaches quite a bit about them being involved in the end of the world. They usher in the end of the world. They help God to destroy it. They help God to bring it back to life. Uh, they are, of course, prominent at Jesus' birth. They're part of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness with the devil. Uh, they're very involved in Jesus' resurrection. They're involved with Jesus' ascension into heaven. Part of the reason that the letter to the Hebrews starts out by talking about them uh, is because, like lots of people in Austin today, uh, they are looking to the spiritual world. They're looking to the spiritual beings of the spiritual world for something powerful, something certain, something greater than their physical experience and all of its disappointments, something that will give them more of a direct connection to God. But the author of this letter has already told us right out of the gate in his first couple of verses that God has now finally spoken to us in his son Jesus. Jesus is the climax of God's message for humanity. He is the final and the best part of what God has to say to us. Because the author says Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. He's the exact imprint of his nature. This is why Christianity is so controversial. Uh, it's making these incredible claims about who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and why, how seriously we need to take what he says. If this is true about who Jesus is, the exact imprint of God's nature, then we have no choice. We have to listen to what he says. He's no mere teacher. Uh, he's not just a political revolutionary. So as close to God as the mighty angels might be, the author here wants to show us that Jesus is superior to them. Uh, why? Because we, we're supposed to go with the angels to confidently and joyfully wor worship Jesus. This is why they're so involved in the Christmas story. They're there to remind us of how important Jesus is. The first thing that the author wants us to see uh, is that Jesus is superior to the angels because he has a superior relationship 
He has a superior relationship. You see that in verse 5. To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, the author here is quoting from two different places in the Old Testament, from two different kinds of literature in the Old Testament, to show us this unique relationship that Jesus has always had to God. Uh, at one level, when you read those passages in the Old Testament, one is in the Psalms and one is in Second uh, Samuel, when you read them in the Old Testament, uh, at a literal level, they're talking about the human Messiah, uh, the king of Israel, David and his son, seated on Israel's throne. But amazingly, this letter to the Hebrews is saying at a deeper level, at a, at a, a more meaningful level, these passages are really not just about Israel's king sitting on David's throne. Really what these passages are about is God's own son whose human incarnation we celebrate on Christmas. Jesus really was the son of Mary, but before his conception in her virgin womb, he had always been the son of God for all of eternity past. Scripture teaches that there is one God, but that he has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Each one of them fully share in God's nature. Uh, when we talk about there being three persons in God, uh, what we're trying to say is that they are distinct, but they're not divided. There's not three gods. There's not one-third God, one-third God, and one-third God. They are all fully God. They all fully share in God's nature, but they are distinct from each other. Uh, the author here says that in Psalm 2, we're hearing, uh, we're listening in, kind of like that game, you know, where you play tele, you can listen in on people's phone calls, uh, where you can hear how the father has always been speaking to the son. He says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. God has created time itself, he stands outside of it, he stands above it. For God, everything is before him as one giant whole, everything is now for God, it's always today for God. And so we call this, this is your key theological phrase for you as a bonus for coming to church on Christmas. This is what theologians call the eternal generation of the Son. The eternal generation of the Son. What does that mean? Uh, that's a way of saying that the Son, the second person of the Trinity, has always been relating to the Father, the first person of the Trinity, as His Son, as the perfect reflection and image of His goodness and glory. There was not a time... Uh, when the Son started to become the Son, uh, there's not going to be a time when He will stop being the Son. He has always been the Son. He has always been relating to the Father in this perfect relationship, uh, this perfect generation, this being begotten of the Father. Uh, throughout the Bible, the angels are sometimes called the sons of God. But their sonship is merely a metaphor. It's just a way to describe their commitment to doing God's will. Because, of course, all parents hope that their kids want to do what they want. But only the Son, only the second person of the Trinity, is fully and eternally God's Son. But the Bible tells us that the humanity, human beings, you and me, corporately together as one family, but also individually, it tells us that humans, not angels, humans have been created in God's image. Nowhere does the Bible say that angels are made in God's image, but it says at a few points, very importantly, humans are made in God's image. That means that human beings reflect God 
and illustrate God in a way that nothing else in God's creation does. Not even angels. And so in a sense, human sonship is a closer analog to Jesus' sonship than the angels' sonship. So when the letter to the Hebrews quotes these two verses, which at one level, remember, are about human kings ruling over Israel, about how they are God's son, the king is God's son, in a sense. But at a deeper level, the letter is showing us that these are about the eternal relating in God between the father and the son. So when the letter to the Hebrews brings these quotes together and says these are really about Jesus, it's helping us to see how the divine sonship that has always existed through all of eternity, the divine sonship and the human sonship, both as king and as image bearer, like all human beings are, those two kinds of sonship come together perfectly and fully in Jesus. Jesus is the eternal image of God, He is the radiance. He's the shining of God's beauty and glory. And so as great as the angels are, and as interested as we might be in what they're like, the angels don't have this unique and this eternal relationship to the Father. The Bible says vastly more about Jesus than that he was a great prophet or an inspiring teacher. So Jesus is superior to the angels because of this superior relationship But this passage also shows us that he has a superior status. A superior status. Look at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Uh, This seems to be a loose quotation from Psalm 95, where the psalmist, I mean, you love these these things in the Psalms where they very defiantly kind of shake their fist at the universe. Uh, This is one of the ones where the psalmist commands all of the gods out there. He says, hey, you gods, you need to worship the one true God, Yahweh. Time for you to worship the one God who made you. Uh, Sometimes the Bible describes the angels as little G gods. Uh, It says sometimes that much of polytheism is driven by an idolatrous worship of the angels and especially the demons. But here, the author says that the angels, the gods, little G gods, The angels are obligated to worship Jesus. And that this is what happened when God brought him into the world. That, of course, includes and begins with his incarnation and his birth. This is why the angels pop up so prominently when Jesus is conceived in the womb of Mary and then when he's born in that stable. Uh, But the worship of the angels keeps going in light of everything that Jesus is going to do. His ministry his teaching, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his return to the earth in judgment. And so it's in anticipation of everything that Jesus is going to do as God's king that the angels are so worshipfully prominent at his birth. Uh, Their announcements to Mary and Joseph, their announcements to the shepherds, the huge crowds of them roaring with songs of praise to God in the sky because of it all. The angels are obligated to worship Jesus as God in the flesh. Nobody should worship the angels, no matter how glorious or beautiful or helpful or powerful they are. They have a lower status than Jesus. Even if, in taking on our frail human nature, there is a sense in which Jesus became lower than the angels. He has a higher status than they do. So you see, the Christmas story is not just another story 
about a hero's humble origins. We love these kinds of stories, stories about people like Abraham Lincoln or Willie Nelson or Ray Charles, people that came up from poverty, people that came up out of nowhere. Jesus certainly did come up out of nowhere. You have the Roman Empire uh, ruling over, very mighty and powerful. uh, Caesar Augustus, one of the greatest emperors who did the most and killed the most people for Rome, of ruling over at the time. They don't care who Jesus is. He's born in the backwoods in a tiny little town in a shed because nobody cares. Nobody can help them. But that, and that's an important part of the story. But that's not just what the story is about. It's not just about his humble origins. As important as the poverty and the humility of his birth is, it's also a story about the glory and the majesty of his birth because of who he is. So even as a tiny newborn in a feeding trough, this little baby is the rightful focus of the mighty angel's praise. Just like the book of Job tells us that the angels sang when God created the world, so now we see them singing at the world's new creation. In this little baby, the eternal son has come as a human in order to redeem the human family and with it, the entire world. Jesus is superior to the angels because of a superior relationship, because of a superior status, but now also and finally because of a superior role. He has a superior role. In verses 7 to 14, you get a bunch of quotes, more quotes from the Old Testament, mostly the Psalms, to help us see and understand what Jesus does and how different that is from what the angels do. So first look at verse 8. You see that Jesus shares in God's role as the eternal king ruling over a rebellious world. The eternal king ruling over a rebellious world. The author says that his verse is actually talking about Jesus himself, even though it's obviously in the original Old Testament context, a reference to Yahweh, to God himself. It says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. The throne of Jesus is eternal. Because as the Son, His throne is the Father's throne. The one God in three persons has always ruled over creation, even in its wicked rebellion against Him. Uh, Second, verses 10 to 12, you see that Jesus shares in God's role as the eternal creator over a shifting world. So eternal king ruling over rebellious world, but also eternal creator ruling over a shifting world. Psalm 102, the author tells us, is talking about Jesus, the eternal Son. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. The most certain and steady parts of our world change. Not just your smartphone, not just your hairline, but even governments and universities and mountains and oceans. All of it changes. All of it, the Bible says, will in the end be destroyed when Jesus returns and rebuilds it all into something perfect and beautiful. Even the angels change. Some of them became evil. Even the good ones continue to learn. In a hundred million years, every one of us will still be changing Every one of us will be growing either toward God or away from God and his recreated world. Only God does not change. God cannot learn anything. 
God cannot be surprised by anything. God cannot become better than he has always been. And so as God, Jesus is the unchanging creator ruling over a changing, unsteady, shifting world. Finally, verses 13 to 14, you have a very simple and final summary contrast between the roles of Jesus and the roles of the angels. He rules and they serve. Verse 13, quoting another psalm, To which of the angels has God ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Jesus is the ruler. He's the sovereign. He's the boss. He exercises dominion and superiority over the entire universe, over all of his and its enemies. Nobody and nothing can cross Jesus. Nobody and nothing can thwart Jesus. But by contrast, the author says, the angels are just servants. It's like he's looking at the angels after talking about all these wonderful things that Jesus does. He looks at the angels and he says, big whoop, they're just servants. Verse 7 has told us that they just do whatever God says, like the wind and the lightning storms do. And then verse 14 echoes it again. Aren't they all ministering spirits? That means doing service, working for other people. Aren't they all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Jesus rules, and the angels don't. They are spectacularly powerful and beautiful and glorious, but they're just servants. And you see here that they serve not only for God's sake, even though they do, but it says here that they serve for your sake. This is amazing. They serve you so that you might join them in joyfully worshiping the eternal Son who is now incarnate in Jesus. Jesus is greater because of who he is. He's God's Son and image because of what he does. He creates the world. He rules the world. He's going to one day recreate the world. And so on Christmas morning, uh, let's let the angels help us. They want to help us. Here's how they want to help us. They want to help us join them in worshiping him. Amen. Let's pray. Father, draw our hearts as distracted as they are to the beauty of your son. Everything that he says, everything that he does, it's a perfect reflection of who you are. So help us to see in him your glory, your beauty, your goodness, and your truth. May we let the angels help us by doing those things. May we see how much better he is than even the most glorious parts of your creation. For we ask humbly in his name. Amen.